Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. My A friend of mine uh, texted me this morning to say... Uh, maybe it's time for there to be an enough already party. We all need to join the enough already party enough already because, uh, there keep being these moments where you think that, uh, some kind of fever is going to break or the kind of, um, uh, uh, hysterical pitch at which we seem to live, uh, in public with news stories and the like is gonna is gonna break as we realize we can't live at this level and that there was some hope maybe that Trump's departure from the scene, even if it's temporary, might have some effect on that. Certainly, it has in relation to the presidency, which we're not focusing on with this incredible, uh, you know, intense, almost monomaniacal focus. But um, the enough already party would convene right now to deal with the after effects of the Derek Chauvin verdict and the decision to highlight this, what is from all evidence that we can glean um, a justified moment of police intervention in the middle of a convi- uh, of the, of the commission of a uh, potentially deadly uh, and certainly injurious crime with a 16-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio, swinging a very large bladed knife at another girl who was pinioned basically to a car. Um, and the police officer in question uh, fired uh, after you know calling for her to get down, get down, get down, fired his gun, and uh, and and saved the life of the girl against the car, and tragically took the life of Makina Bryant, uh, who was the the girl uh, wielding the knife. And we don't know what the circumstances of the story are, and all of that. I, I bring this up as a as an enough already matter because uh, the cop was um, hanged and and convicted and hanged in public fora um, even before we knew anything about the case. And we, of course, had the had the spectacle of LeBron James somehow getting a copy of a picture of the police officer and running it and saying demand accountability as if almost to set off a mob to hunt this guy down in, You're in next. Columbus. You're next. Uh, you know, one of the, you know, uh, richest uh, and most um, uh, famous uh, African-Americans. Uh you know, calling calling a mob down on a on a on a a working uh, officer of law enforcement who had just saved a black girl's life. It should be well, pointed out. Yeah. Well, so that's what we that's what we need to get to. I mean, um, and uh, as we had talked about yesterday, this whole feeling that we had that people seemed like Jason Johnson and MSNBC and others seemed almost disappointed that the verdict in the Chauvin case. Uh, did not perpetuate their sense of the uh, of the existential injustice uh, of being a black person in the United States, 
that justice having been served meant that we were going to be able to apologize and move on and not pay enough attention to the, you know, to the consuming tragedy that it is to take a breath in the United States uh, when you have, uh, when you, when you have other than white skin. Um, And then then just plug this in, just plug it in. There's another killing in, uh, in, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, It's very disheartening, right? I mean, it's maddening, but it's also disheartening. I think it's, it's rather clarifying. You know, in a way that the activist class doesn't seem to know what they're flirting with. Um, we, we had may, less than 24 hours in which there was a, a mini news cycle of progressives and liberal activists saying, you know, castigating conservatives who said there's, there's probably going to be civil unrest no matter what this verdict de- determines. And I was skeptical of that, but deferential to it because... And that is that does seem to be the prevailing sentiment, but it was heartening to see you know a measured reaction to a very dispassionate and uh, by all accounts appropriate um, dispensation of justice in a courtroom um, that lasted less than twenty four hours because what we're seeing on the streets right now from these you know roving bands of very agitated on the verge of something violent uh, mobs is that they wanted they did want to riot. This is what they wanted. They were all geared up. They were all tuned up. They were ready to go. And they didn't get the trigger that they wanted. So this will have to do. And to anybody, and again, as you wrote, John, in a fantastic piece for the New York Post, you you. have to subordinate your common sense, your own perception, your empirical understanding of what happened here in a video that's available to everybody that's hard to ignore um, in order to maintain the perception that some injustice was perpetrated here. Look, and the activists who are making you do that are flirting with a cognitive dissonance that I don't think they really fully recognize the effects of, of that. They're asking people to subordinate what they know to be the truth to a lie that is socially preferable right now. And that's unsustainable. And I well, think, look, Oh yeah, go ahead. Abe, well, I think that's, I mean, I, I find it all, um, John, you say disheartening. Noah says clarifying. I find it uh, chilling. Um, the and particularly the aspect of it that is the this this widespread agreed upon lie that um, there's this embrace of a fiction. We've all we can see the video. It's very clear that this cop um, not only was was in the right, but did a remarkable job. Um, of of reacting that quickly and accurately um, to 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 potentially save the other girl's life, um, so it is it is this agreed upon fiction that is given the imprimatur of government, of media, um, and everyone goes along with it. And it is that kind of reality when uh, you have you're you're being forced to live in this fiction. You see that that's what radicalizes people on the right. Um, because that because that seems unbeatable um, by any means other than um, something extreme. Well, and it also it, it it's forcing well-intentioned people, which is I, I I like to think is most of this country who want to understand the challenges of law enforcement, who also have some sympathy for the experience of others who aren't like them. It forces them into a situation where they have to listen to someone like Valerie Jarrett 
you know, Obama's former senior advisor say things like, oh, it was just a knife fight. First of all, it was not a knife fight. A knife fight implies that both people had knives and are fighting with them. This was a, a potential, this was a stabbing attempt. And the idea that we're going to define homicide down in order to suit a social justice narrative is appalling. It's appalling. And so I'm, I'm actually, I, I agree with Abe saying it's chilling. I, I think it is chilling. And the, I will say, shout out to some of the media did, look, Don Lemon, who I'm no fan of, on CNN last night, actually made a pretty reasonable explanation of, of the events, talked about how, you know, there was in a split second, you have to make these decisions. So not, and, and I think, I believe ABC News also did a pretty good report. NBC, however, completely disregarded the the fact that this woman had a I think it was like a butcher knife kitchen knife in her hand and was swinging it at this girl like they 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 it's what they omit as much as it is the narrative that they tell and they're omitting the very important fact in the same way they did with Jacob Blake who was also armed for part of his encounter with police the fact that these are not just people walking down the street going about their day who are being hunted by law enforcement these are people who are in situations where they are in some cases actively threatening the lives of other people Look, you know, all of this is true, and it's true to talk about, you know, uh, the misbehavior of of NBC and all of that. But the the, the startling thing that happened wasn't uh, that it was misreported or that people were t- talking uh, crap on 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 social media. It was the spokesman of the president of the United States, Jen Psaki, reading a statement from the podium yesterday in which she said of uh, Bikina Bryant, she was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family in the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts black and Latino people in communities and that black women and girls like black men and boys experience higher rates of police violence. She had, the whoever that wrote this statement at the Biden White House had decided that they were going to put their finger on the scale of the notion that what happened here was an injustice rather than the saving of the life of another black teenager. And that matters an enormous amount. I mean, you know, media bad, media reporting comes and goes and people, it gets corrected, whatever. I mean, it's terrible. I don't want to make, make it, but I mean, this is how far these things have gone that uh, the president of the United States, uh, who had no trouble referring to hoodlums at an earlier point in his life, is now sending out his, you know, his spokesman to uh, to act as though um, uh, we are now to presume that law enforcement disproportionately targets Black and Latino people as a matter of course, and that it is acceptable for the president of the United States to say such a thing. He is... He is not the chief law enforcement officer of the United States because we have 3,309 counties in the United States, each of which has its own method of local policing. But he is one of the chief law enforcement officials in the United States, and he is now buying into the idea that law enforcement itself is inherently discriminatory and dangerous to uh, to to black and Latino people. And if that's where we are, then yeah, I mean – this is radicalizing. This is going to radicalize people in a way that they don't like because because this what we had here and what I, I say in my piece is go you can go watch the video. There it is nine seconds. The policeman gets out of the car. He says to someone, "What's going on?" As he's saying, "What's going on?" One girl falls at his feet. 
because she is running backwards as McKenna Bryant is pursuing her, at which point he, McKenna Bryant turns and heads toward the girl who is slammed up against the car. The cop says, get down, get down, get down, get down. That's like three seconds later, after the girl has fallen at his feet, after he says, get down, it's 12 seconds. It's it's actually, it's two more seconds. And then McKenna Bryant starts to swing the knife. She's pulling back her arm to stab and he shoots. And, and in all elapsed time, he gets his foot out of the car. Nine seconds later, he has had to discharge his weapon to save someone's life. And I'm getting emails all day and night from people saying, he should have used a taser. Why didn't he shoot her in the foot? Why didn't he interpose his body between them? I mean, literally. So I'm saying to people, did you watch the video? Yes, I watched the video. Like, I, I believe that they did. But I mean, he was eight feet away. How is he going to jump eight feet in a second to keep the knife from stabbing the girl? Like, Look at look at the evidence before you. Look, believe your own eyes. So just as the video in the in the George Floyd case was the thing that could not be escaped by Derek Chauvin's defense. It could not be escaped. That's why the prosecutor said, believe your own eyes to the jury. You know what you saw. You saw a guy with his knee on someone's back for nine minutes who was saying he couldn't breathe and they could not overcome that in terms of reasonable doubt. And we just watched this. I watched it literally 25 times. It's nine seconds. Count off nine seconds, right? One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi, six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi. Gets out of the car. Girl falls at his feet. Other girl slammed against the car. Makina Bryant turning, swinging her arm. He shoots. How can anyone second guess that? The the taser argument um, is particularly false because um, the point about uh, the tasers versus uh, firearms is you're not supposed you you when someone's life is in immediate danger, that is when you're supposed to use. A firearm. force. Yes. Yeah, tasers are for non-lethal interventions in right. situations where someone needs to be subdued but is not actively threatening the life of another person in such a way that you have no time to do that. Um, I mean, I will... It is, to me, uh, you know, they were, they were marching still in Columbus. Black Lives Matter is rallying around this. They're doing the hashtag, the say her name, all this stuff. I hope a lot of Americans looking at this case in particular will see what a lot of us who've watched our local chapters of Black Lives Matter uh, try to turn uh, homicidal maniacs into victims of police violence. Uh, they'll see the the craven hypocrisy of a movement that elevates someone who is trying to kill another black girl as as some sort of martyr. They're, they're really, it, it is appalling. People should stop giving their money to this organization. It's, it's not, it, it's no longer um, a movement that we should, that, that average Americans should look at and say, this is generally doing good. And the reason I emphasize the media is that I agree. I think it's much worse that Jen Psaki and the Biden administration are, are taking this tack. But I think a lot of Americans 
get their information in a kind of filtered through around social media, what they see on the that evening's news. And the framing of this story is going to stick with a lot of people who might otherwise be reasonable enough to look at the evidence themselves. And that concerns me. Anytime you have the word, you know, even the New York Times omitted the word uh, they, they omitted the word unarmed in a tweet by Ben Crump, um, who was describing the situation incorrectly. The Times edited that out when it included his, uh, quoted him. him in a, she in was story. unarmed. Right. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of, you know, that's not the kind of thing that the, that the media should be doing. They are shaping a narrative. And now they're going to feel, I agree with you, John, they're going to feel in, that that narrative is the official version because it literally became the official version when Jen Psaki said those words yesterday. We, um, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, over the last couple of months and understandably about uh, things like qualified immunity for police. Is this fair? Police are granted the, the notion of qualified immunity where they are granted a certain level of discretion uh, for their actions that other people uh, don't get. And union contracts that, depending on the city, including like New York, that allow uh, police officers 72 hours before they are forced to testify or say what it is that they that happened in a controversial event or something like that. If you want to know why those rules were first promulgated or put into place, and they're bad, they're bad like almost all preferential union deals are, are often bad in that they end up being in place to defend the worst and not the best to sort of save uh, people who deserve to be you know, uh, removed from their jobs uh, to save their jobs, um, that kind of thing. These things are put in place because there was, this is not the first time that uh, the liberal establishment has gone after law enforcement and arm and and the people that we uh, engaged to protect us with uh, lethal force, not just cops, but the U.S. military. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was a deliberate and conscious turn among American liberal elites away from police and the military and this idea that they represented a kind of fascist mindset in the United States. They were pursuing, uh, you know, hippies and, you know, just peace-loving people and, and, and investigating peace-loving organizations, and they were all corrupt, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and, and um, uh, this all was of a piece with the same moment as uh, that uh, 9-11 policing came in, which basically said to cops, don't go out on the street, don't engage with the public, they don't like us, they don't trust us, we're just going to sit in the car and wait until we hear that there's a crime committed, and then we will go and deal with the aftermath of the crime, one of the key decisions that led to the crime spike is that there was no prevention being executed by police officers in the United States largely for you know almost 3 decades because there has was this opinion turn against the cops and it's happening again it started happening in in real time really with Maybe maybe Michael Brown and Ferguson, maybe a little earlier than Michael Brown. But um, you were hearing all this thing like, well, why would a police officer ever, you know, why would anyone be a cop now? Or why would they ever get out of their car? Why would they ever do anything? And uh, one of the ways in which 
a lot of this was turned around was a kind of implicit understanding uh, among city managers and people who were negotiating union contracts and even state legislatures that unless police, unless the police were given uh, to understand that the people who, the politicians who governed them had their back and weren't going to turn on them because Al Sharpton, uh, himself a criminal who, you know, encouraged a riot that killed that you know that that killed seven people uh, in in 1994. Uh, you know, was going to start attacking, and then you would have David Dinkins or whoever, whatever liberal politician at the time, uh, was was going to come down on them, and that the easiest and least politically costly thing for such a politician to do was to throw the cop. In, in some, you know, in some cir- circumstance to the wolves, there was literally such a case in New York in 1991, a drug dealer named uh, Kiko Garcia was shot by a police officer in a stairwell in Washington Heights. And before all the facts were known, before it was known that he had pointed a gun at the police officer, Michael O'Keefe, and all of that, David Dinkins had agreed that the city was going to pay for the funeral of Kiko Garcia someone who had threatened the life of a police officer and was himself a career criminal. So there is real world evidence of what happens when that is the political mood in the country and the political mood led by liberal politicians. And if we're going to, if we're going back there, we're getting all kinds of evidence that we're going back there. I mean, uh, uh, this is, uh, this is no joke. We are seeing uh, rises in crime in almost every major metropolitan area in double digits. Granted, again, it's from a very small base, so the absolute number of crimes is not high because the crime level has been so low. But uh, these things are like, you know, snowballs rolling down a hill. I mean, they, 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 they gather force and they gather strength unless they are resisted. And the President of the United States is sending the very clear message that they will not be resisted. Which is very bizarre because it's such a a one eighty turn from the Joe Biden of the campaign trail and the Joe Biden of the campaign. I'm <clears throat> rounding this up for the blog today. The Joe Biden of the campaign trail, at least his advisors, were very proud of their capacity to resist pressure from liberal Twitter to assume, to adopt positions that were outside the mainstream of American political thought, even outside the mainstream of democratic political thought. They credited that with winning the primary and to a great extent winning the election. And they've all but abandoned that strategy entirely. And it's gotten them into trouble already. The the one, the example that springs to mind is this just jumping on the bandwagon of the notion that the the voting bill in Georgia represented Jim Crow 2.0 putting pressure on the all-star game to abandon Georgia. And then when everybody took a breath and got a chance to look at the law and got a chance to review the process by which MLB made this decision, it looked horrible and it was a debacle. And people began turning on this White House and being critical of this White House for probably the first time since his presidency faced real criticism from interests that have a greater base of support than the activist class that populates online forums. Okay, and but I think I think no the, the backlash coming a mile away. If you're just, if you're talking about rising crime rates, and co- accompanied with this backlash against police that defies all logic and reason and your own eyes, that you can and 
You can see it coming my way because it already happened, according to Democrats. This is what they dealt with in 2020. Okay, but this is not – that's why I think you, you do – weirdly enough, you do Biden and his people an injustice uh, in saying that they're they're like captives of extremely online people. This is no longer the province or opinion of just extremely online people. This has become conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party – and among liberals, America's systemically racist, cops are bad, uh, and 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 something needs to be done about all of it. That is well, and, it's a little bit they more are, and they are, but I will put it this way. They are acting according to conscience and conviction. And the yeah. issue and that's important because that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of the political changes that are gonna greet their uh taking on these the set of ideas because when you believe it it's very hard to get away from it okay but they believe in an ideological abstraction that i think this most recent case in columbus ohio is a perfect example of when the abstraction meets reality right and they really the cognitive dissonance which i think is you know the term that we one of you said earlier in the show is real and it's real for the kind of voters that to your point noah moderate democrats in in areas that you know in states or areas that are more purple than blue express deep concern about. So I actually think that they will, that if you keep saying things like structurally racist or, you know, white supremacy over and over and over and over and over again to a population that then says, okay, show me the examples of this. And your example of it is a really, is a, is a terrible cop. And, and our friend John Last has a good sort of thing about how, about Chauvin in particular and how the union protected him throughout. He, he was not a good cop to begin with. You know, that was, but was it white supremacy? Not necessarily. It was, it was bad police work. He was a bad cop. He got what he should have gotten. That's justice. On the other hand, you have liberal darlings like AOC saying, well, this isn't justice either because of the systemic problem. So people cannot get a, a grip on what they mean by that abstraction, even as they keep repeating it. And frankly, I think it's too narrow of you to uh, suggest that the Biden administration's uh, progressive, anti-progressive Twitter strategy being abandoned is only is relevant insofar as we're talking about critical race theory. It's not just that. It is D.C. statehood, which you can't even imagine the Biden campaign endorsing, but the White House sure has. It is the refugee stuff where they put a cap on the refugees. And, that, and, and according to the, the timeline that the Washington Post had out, for very good reasons, for for um, administrative purposes that were abandoned because progressive Twitter pushed on them real hard. It's the transformation of the entire economy, which the Biden campaign wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole because they weren't trying to transform anything. They were restoring, right? All this stuff is is anathema to the Biden campaign, which they have embraced in part because the the Biden campaign was a complete lie that Joe Biden was always this person. He was always a very liberal guy, a very progressive guy who was just sort of parading around as this restorative moderate in in defiance of everything we already knew about him, but also because they are in thrall to their base. That seems to be just what happens when you get into the White House now is that you can't see beyond your own base. Okay, so there's a very interesting piece uh, at the Crystal Ball, which is uh, Larry's uh, the uh, Center for Politics at the University of Virginia's online resource uh looking at biden's approval numbers and uh at at this point uh compared to other presidencies and what's striking is despite the fact we look at him and we hear him we say oh look people like this and he's really popular and all that he isn't that popular i mean he's pot compared to trump trump at this point was you know around 40 percent and he's around 52 or 53 that is a historic low 
for presidents, the only president who has who hit that low a number was Bill Clinton in 1993. And remember, Clinton only got 43% of the vote. He got up to 53, which means that he rose significantly above his actual vote total. And it got people to say, all right, well, you know, he's doing what he can do, whatever, after 100 days. Biden's at 53, which is like a point and a half above where he scored uh, on on election day. And I, I bring this up only to say that if his what Biden is doing is following pretty precisely the model of Clinton in 1992, which is to say Clinton gets elected as a new Democrat, the guy who ran home to execute the mentally you know, the mentally incompetent Ricky Ray Rector so that he could be known as a tough on crime guy. The guy who was, you know, speaking in a Southern accent, talked about alcohol hope. He was the head of the new Democrats, all of that. And then he comes into office. And the first thing that happens is somebody insults uh, the military, insults Colin Powell, talks about, uh, um, you know, sort of like uh, changing the rules on, on gays in the military, and then embraces a giant uh, tax increase because he came into power and the the center of gravity in his party was not where he ran. And Biden may be an exact, you know, the Biden ran in a place and there is no place like that in American politics now that he is in the White House and he is occupying the place that his party in some odd way is insisting upon and he is heading for the rocks and the shoals that had, that 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 took Bill Clinton down uh in 1994 with the you know at that point the most lopsided midterm election in American history because he does not have the country behind him and where he is not going to have the country behind him is the notion that a cop who saves a girl from a knife is a is is you know is bad and and uh, and that and that the and that what's more that the girl who was swinging the knife is a child she's a 16 year old child or as Cory Bush the first term congressman from Missouri put it a baby she's a 16 year old baby said Cory Bush a baby a baby with a butcher knife a baby with a butcher knife doesn't get to kill another baby who doesn't have a butcher knife not in my country, they don't, and I don't care what color anybody is, uh, and we can get to that in terms of systemic racism as well. But um, the, the I wanted to I, hold on, hold on. No, I got it. I got to Okay, because look, are you still going to the post office? Are you still paying full price for postage? <clears throat> okay, stop. Because thanks to stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year. It brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer, a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop shipping out orders, or just navigating our hybrid work life, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No wonder no wonder over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off U.S. UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. 
Look, it's a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code COMMENTARY, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in COMMENTARY. That's Stamps.com, promo code COMMENTARY, Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Okay, no, I was interrupting you, so. Yeah, um, <clears throat> the morally persuasive argument that uh, Democrats and progressives have when they address police violence is what we talked about yesterday, which was um, <clears throat> a pretty intuitive articulation of the problem by Van Jones, um, which is that they simply want law enforcement to follow the law. The law, as we all understand it, as it applies to all of us, equally, evenly, and without prejudice. What Democrats are articulating in this case is that we don't want people to follow the law necessarily, not evenly, not equally, but equitably, which means that certain people get to commit certain crimes with impunity. Um, That is not a morally persuasive argument. That is a particularly detrimental argument. And we don't have a whole lot of polling around this, shockingly, but in New York City, for example, there's a mayoral race that's going to take place this November. And at the top of the list of priorities, just below COVID and reopening business, is crime. Crime and public safety. Rising crime rates. Among Democrats, this is a Democratic primary for mayor. This is their top priority. And Democrats aren't speaking to Democrats right now to say nothing of independents and Republicans. They are lost in this hall of mirrors they've created for themselves, most of which is is social media related, it is social media based. And they're not speaking to the general public. And you can't just turn a, turn a switch and get around to campaign time and start talking to the general public and pretend that you can etch a sketch away all of 2020 and 2021. Well, and there's, there's also a way in which they're talking about what they claim to be doing using terms like equity, which, which as we've many times mentioned is a bugbear of mine, is not the same thing as equality of opportunity or equality of access. And that, com- again, the, the, the average person looks at some of that talk and says, oh yeah, equity, that, that sounds, that sounds nice, right? Let, let's, let's be better. Let's do that. And then they see it in practice. They see it in practice in educational context, which looks deeply unfair. They see it as, as, you know, John sent us all a story on our, on our group text chain about, you know, a, a vaccine provider in Washington state who is not allowing white people to get the vaccine, vaccinations at their facility as a matter of so-called equity. People look at those stories and say, well, that's not right. Wait, is, is that what equity is? In fact, it is because equity involves not just re- bring the people who are on the bottom up. It means you have to chop down the ones who are on top and bring them all down to the same level. It is very much, you know, the Harrison Bergeron. We've talked about that. But that, I think, is going to be another problem for them when they go to voters at, at home in their home districts and have to talk about the policy uh, ideas that are that are that that are fueling these these measures. They're not persuasive. That just like defund the police was not persuasive to people who live in edge neighborhoods where crime is increasing. The the argument that um, I'm seeing a lot now on the left uh, in the wake of the most uh, the recent uh, cop shooting, um, and this this goes to Noah's point about <clears throat> the difference between wanting um, the law enforced. Uh, uh, justly and fairly um, and wanting something else. The argument I'm seeing now, and this is a, a, a kind of a, a slightly new nuance in, in the larger left argument here, and it's coming primarily from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, 
uh, the, the, you know, the godmother of the 1619 project is that what, what's happening with cops and black Americans, um, is what the law is it was designed to make happen. This is how it's supposed to happen. The law itself is supposed to be unjust in this country. Right. She said that she said uh, in another like astonishing, I don't know how people just go out and, and, and talk garbage, illiterate, ahistorical garbage. She said that um, uh, policing in the United States started um, literally uh, as slave patrols. Policing in the United States started following the creation of the police department in London, which was created by Robert Peel, and they weren't, which is why policemen are called Bobbies, and they weren't out hunting out for runaway slaves in London. Uh, America was entirely unpoliced for 200 years. So this this forecloses the the prospect of the – just and equitable enforcement of the law, right? If if, okay. if your idea yeah. is that the law itself is is wrong, right? Okay, so let's talk about believe your own eyes here because that ultimately, as I said, the prosecutor in in the Chauvin case said believe your own eyes to the jury, and I think that was probably the thing that either saying it or the fact of it is why he was convicted. And I, in my column said, believe your own eyes, watch the video. It's nine seconds between the time that the cop steps out of the car, the time he has to, he, he has to discharge his gun to save the life of the girl who was slammed up against the car. Um, The whole point about the systemic racism conversation is that it is a way of saying, do not believe your own eyes. Oh, you think you see a reality, but it's not. You're living in a Philip K. Dick novel. Barack Obama was never really the president. Kamala Harris isn't really the vice president. You live in Chicago, your mayor isn't black. Uh, you live in, you know, you live in these places. You're, you, the the power structures aren't African American or Hispanic. That's all an illusion because systemic racism uh, is controlling unconsciously everybody who. Uh, everything that happens. And therefore, what you see with your own eyes is false. What you feel with your own experience is false. If you're walking down the street and you see somebody who is menacing or frightening and you get frightened and you cross the street and that person happens to be someone of a different race from you, you are, you are, you are participating in systemic racism rather than believing the evidence of your own eyes which is you're not confronting them. You're not saying, oh, you're a thug and I need to get away from you. You are being prudent and wandering off by yourself to protect yourself and uh, telling people that what they see and what they experience and what they what is going on with them is, is not real. This is the red pilling or blue pilling or whatever it is. Uh, everybody does it. Liberals do it. Conservatives do it. When the facts don't line up with their priors or their ideological beliefs. They want to say, in this case, don't believe your own eyes. Stuff is going on. Magical, conspiratorial, evil stuff that you cannot perceive is going on. 
And therefore, the election was stolen. Therefore, systemic racism is dominating every decision that everybody makes in the United States relating to black people. But the difference here, I think, and, and it's important, is that, yeah, I totally agree. Like the, the QAnon election was stolen. Folks are, are guilty of this as well. But the, the left controls a lot of the cultural institutions that serve as the gateway for that information. And the Nicole Hannah-Jones example is a good one. I'm glad uh, Abe brought it up. Rewriting history is something that that is also on their agenda because then there are no facts, right? If you eliminate the fact that someone was armed and say this cop shot this baby and people hear that over and over again and anytime there's any sort of interaction with law enforcement, that's the story that's that's turned out. It's like the bad it's like the the bad tweet that's then corrected. The first bad tweet with all the misinformation is the one everyone reads. Nobody reads the correction. And there's a sense in which on a <laughs> systemic scale the activist left is trying to do that with history. I mean, look at what they're trying to do with how they teach American history in this country. And it's why conservatives are really reacting strongly to that. Um, it, it's the way they talk about the justice system. I do think there's an effort to, to that, that's a new wave of uh, pressure that's brought to bear on these cultural institutions and hence cancel culture as well. That is, that's different from even, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s where you had people who were anti-cop and, crime was still rising. Look, um, uh, in the in the interview that I did or the conversation I had with my father, Norman Podhoritz, for the 75th anniversary issue of Commentary, he said that as Commentary began to sort of uh, frame the, the ideas that came to be known along with the ideas in the framed in the public interest as neoconservatism. One of the things that people responded to when they wrote in or when they, when they liked articles that were published on, on various things was they would say, I'm so glad that I read this because I thought I was going crazy. I thought I was taking crazy pills. Something, things are going on that do not comport with my understanding of reality that I can see behind before me. And I, I thank you for saying no, you know, North Vietnam is not a wonderful worker state. No, it, it you know, uh, there are 10,000 different things you can say. When people burn a coffin, as they did in 1968 during a school strike, uh, with a Jewish star on it, uh, uh, members of a, of a, of a radical uh, teacher's uh, collective uh, that is anti-Semitism. Don't tell me that it's not. They're burning a coffin with a Jewish star in it or something like that. And neoconservatism or some version of, you know, of the kind of revolt against liberalism in the 60s and 70s was built precisely on this sense that um, uh, that reality was getting away from people and that and that uh, what was the party that they were mostly a part of and the experiences they were having were being uh, belittled, uh, and, and the evidence of their own eyes was being gainsaid. And the idea that, for example, that uh, it was no longer safe in their neighborhoods was something you were not supposed to say, or you were not being fair to suffering minorities and poor people and, and that sort of thing. And I have no idea. This is why I began with the enough already party. I mean, that is kind of what I'm talking about here, which is if the president of the United States and his party continue to try to describe things that are going on in terms that are not true, just as there was a revolt from 2017 to 2020 when Donald Trump said, I had the biggest crowds in the history of the inauguration, and we all saw that he didn't, 
the cognitive dissonance stuff is real. It helps fuel it helped fuel that movement against him that wasn't just purely ideological. It was what is he talking about? What what are they doing? How can they say this? And we now have three or four cases of this with Biden. We have this with the the child uh, being you know un, uh, unequally treated by law enforcement, while we can see that the facts are otherwise, uh, the border that is not a crisis or it's seasonal when we know that there are more people crossing the border or arriving at the border than has been the case in 15 years. I mean, and I, there are a couple of other cases like this, and they are creating the conditions for the backlash against them that will have nothing to do with Fox News or whatever. It is people going, you're making me crazy. You are, this is not right. What you are saying, how you are describing what I am seeing with my own eyes. Um, I think maybe you could even add to that list um, the administration's take on where we're at with the uh, pandemic and vaccinations, right? And uh, that is that is another one. <clears throat> where we're being told that inoculation is not inoculation. How so? And importantly, none of, well, Dave, well, continue. Because if you're, if you're supposed to get the shot to live no differently from, from the way you lived before, um, this, is, this, is a, this is another reality distortion that is driving people oh, right. crazy. Right. Yeah. Right. The vaccines don't behave like every other right. vaccine that we're familiar with, um, when they're actually better than most vaccines that we're familiar with. Um, and importantly, you have we have every reason to believe that none of this will be visible in polling, that all of this will be sub rosa, and if it materializes, will materialize from like a bolt from the blue, because people aren't being honest with pollsters. How about being honest with themselves? How bad it is being reflected in polling? That's why I mentioned the the piece in Crystal Ball by Kyle Kondik. Biden is at a low. As a president after uh, after after a hundred days, not at a high. He's at a relative low. Trump was much worse, but Trump is of course an X factor. Biden is a restoration candidate, a conventional politician, former vice president of the United States, forty some odd year senator. All of that, right? Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, we may already be seeing results in the polling that maybe he should have expected to be at sixty and not at fifty three. And he's not at sixty, and 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 things like the border crisis, for example, we know in every poll he is way underwater on that. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it's a midterm. The president's not on the ballot. Um, he's he's a likable person, and people like him. Pr- pr- his favorability ratings are higher than his job approval ratings. Um, what what I'm specifically thinking about are issue sets uh, in issue polling. Um, which is already notoriously unreliable, but just take the vaccination issue, for example, as we've been saying for a while, if you're actually following the facts on the ground, the evidence on the ground, polling is not, you know, doesn't align with reality as we've been seeing declining interest in getting a vaccine at these vaccination sites, even as quote unquote vaccine hesitancy is in decline. It's no longer all that fashionable. It's less fashionable, at least, to be skeptical of vaccines. But individual personal behavior doesn't seem to reflect that. So you're going to have people like Ron Klain who hang their hat on polling and say that everything they're doing is wonderful and popular and Republicans love it. Everybody loves it. And they're going to go into the midterms with that impression. And I'd be willing to bet that they're going to be disabused of that notion. 
But see, that's an interesting thing because that's what is the purpose of that? If if you're Ron Klain and you're the White House chief of staff, you want propagandistically to say we're popular uh, to shore up your, you know, and like have make this argument and all of that. But of course, the purpose of polling for serious political actors is to precisely to expose to figure out what your vulnerabilities are so that you can address them. If he wants to believe the the meliorist case that everything is fine, uh, then he's going to – and this is, of course, a grave democratic weakness. There's a triumphalism in in the Democratic Party's what, you know, somebody might call pro-noia. Like they think everybody thinks like them and everything is going to go great. Biden's going to win by 10. Everything's going to be fantastic. And they don't – push hard against their own conventional wisdom to see whether or not the public is with them. And there are ways of doing that in sophisticated social science analysis. And if they don't do it, they're deliberately blinding themselves to a reality that is going to come hit them in the face. Um, I mean, even before the midterm elections in 1994, when the the generic polling – which is how you really measure this. That is, are you going to vote for the Democrat or the Republican? Was 15, 16, 17 points in the Republican direction dating back into the spring of 1994. Democrats didn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. Couldn't be. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, who doesn't like what we're doing? Everybody wants healthcare. Whatever it was, they did not, they could not emotionally handle the idea that they were crosswise of the electorate. And it's just an interesting psychological fact that if they want to believe that what they're doing is popular, rather than testing the theory that what they're doing is popular so they can see where they need to address things. And so far, I think it has been politically savvy of them to say, we're advancing these bills in this incredibly divided, polarized Senate. And you know what? They're more popular than they than they look like. Just to shore up the Democrats who might waver or the Democratic congressmen or senators who might waver about some of this uh, by throwing whatever data they can to get them to, to do what they need them to do in voting terms. But that's not going to save them from an electorate that does not think that that the world that they are either seeking or that they are portraying bears any relation to the world that the voters want to live in or that they or that they do live in and speaking of living in let's talk about living in your home working at home from your desk chair uh that uh, gives you a big pain in the back stop doing that get yourself an x chair like i did with its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back, and with its new XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. The X-Chair, this technology goes right to your core. It increases your blood flow, your muscle recovery, your energy, four different massage modes, fast warming heat technology, You'll look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel it. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs, and it's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. 
X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Um, uh, let's just uh, c- conclude on one note relating to uh, the vaccines and the virus. Um, so uh, Biden has now trumpeted the fact that they've gotten 200 million uh, you know, shots uh, in arms, even as the numbers are going down. And again, they seem to not be able to figure out how to talk about where we are now because um, Biden is now threatening the cancellation of the 4th of July. I don't know how he thinks he has the power to cancel the 4th of July. It's like Alan Rickman in Robin Hood, King of Thieves saying, cancel Christmas. You know, he's like, I think he was the sheriff of Nottingham. (laughs) So he announces because Robin Hood is robbing from the poor and, you know, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Actually, it's the Monty Python sketch where the guy ends up robbing from the, from the poor, uh, you know, uh, giving to the rich. Um, that he's going to cancel the 4th of July if people don't get, you know, if if, if we don't uh, get, get past this or something. Uh, everybody who wants to have parties on the 4th of July at their house is getting vaccinated. Everybody who is not getting vaccinated either doesn't believe in vaccination and will have the party regardless or doesn't want to have a party, which is why they're not getting vaccinated because they are this uh, clearly larger than we thought populace that is enjoying the social isolation and the lack of social anxiety that they are experiencing and all of that. So this is how he's trying to get people to get vaccinated yeah, is by threatening. Day hostage. Yeah. Yes. Let's hold independence day hostage. That's, that's great yeah. optics too. Yeah. 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 And let's blame the people who are doing, who have, who've done their civic duty and their, and, 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 and live through their self-interest by punishing them too. But it's just such a, pitiable expression of impotence that you would say something that like that, that you can't ever possibly act. Yeah. And just, I mean, how else I can't think of another way that you could communicate so effectively that you have no idea what you're doing right now or how to get past it. They don't, or, or that you simply can't countenance the measures that probably would have a better effect, like providing people with incentives to get vaccinated rather yeah, than look, punishing I mean, everybody else because their neighbors won't. It's just, they just have no idea how to do this. And yet another pitfall for this administration, because what's ballasting his job approval numbers right now, the COVID response. COVID. Well, and, and, and in areas where that has been tried, we're literally, so here in DC, they are literally sending people door to door with vaccine to, to try to get shots in arms and it's just not always working. People are saying, no, thanks. I don't need that. I mean, and, it's, you know. And, and how is how is the culture handling this? By haranguing and mocking Trump voters. You have people like Stephen Colbert last night saying, oh, let's just imagine that COVID is a car- caravan and the vaccine is a wall. And this is how you're going to get around. They have no idea how to handle the fact that it isn't Trump voters. It isn't rural people that you really have to reach here, in part because they're unreachable to you specifically. But the members of your constituencies, your your coalition, African-American voters, minority voters, people who are, these, as you said, John, these really kind of quiet, socially awkward people in the professional class who don't really want this to end. You don't know how to reach them. You're not even trying. Well, they don't 
they uh, this again co- comports with this idea that I have that people that that what 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 liberals see in the United States is not the United States. They see a subsection of the United States and they extrapolate it to everything else. And, uh, and they uh, are inclined toward a strategy of uh, hectoring and, and punishment. And again, I don't think this is a democratic or liberal weakness. This is something that Republicans suffer from too. And it's all part of the geographical big sort and the fact that people know less and less know people who disagree with them. But hey. but, but um, I agree that it exists on the, on the right as well. But uh, two recent studies, the, the first one, I forget who did it, um, looked at what people, what Americans know or think they know about um, COVID and, and its impact and, and the deaths. Um, and it shows that liberals are far more out of touch with the facts on the ground um, than those on the right. Uh, and then there was a, a second study done by the Skeptic Research Center in February on um, cop shootings and um, unarmed civilians, um, uh, and particularly African-Americans. Um, and once again, uh, this study showed that by far the, those who the Americans who were most out of touch with the facts on the ground, who had the most wildly exaggerated um, sense of what was going on as compared to reality, um, were liberals. Right. I mean, uh, these numbers are are, are really uh, startling, and they and they do have this peculiar analog to some of these Trump numbers that you see. You know, sort of like forty five percent think that the rioters had a point on January sixth. I mean. If 20% of Democrats or liberals believe that COVID requires hospitalization, when in fact, you know, I mean, not only if 525,000 people died of COVID or 575,000 people died, uh, some fact with uh, COVID implicated, uh, they weren't all in hospitals when they died, number one. And number two, you know, we've had, I don't know, 8 million cases or something. like. I don't even know what the number is of, of, of theoretically of cases of COVID, all of which have been experienced by people in their homes. They go in their homes and they quarantine, they're red, they, their families, you know, pass soup under the door and whatever. Like, how can you not know this? You can actually not know this because you actually don't know anybody who got it, maybe. Like, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. And the police shooting stuff is 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 even more startling. Like people think that um, I don't know what is it like ten uh, percent of all uh, police uh, things that involve police end in shooting or something like that. I mean, these it's 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 it, it's astonishing, and it's one of those things where you know, as Dostoevsky said, you know, when you when you don't believe in anything, you'll believe when you when you don't believe in anything, you'll believe in everything. When you don't have a root understanding of things, uh, any factoid uh, that seems to reinforce your ignorance uh, is, um, you know, something you could just spout off. Ah, Sorry to end on this uh, depressing note, but what can I do? It's just the nature of the beast here at the commentary magazine podcast where we do have that merch at com- merch.commentarymagazine.com mugs are back the mugs are in we got them in the office yesterday lots of mugs for you 20 bucks for a commentary keep the candle burning mug beautiful black ape drinks his coffee from it every morning uh you'll love it and there's t-shirts and tote bags and various other things give a look merch.commentarymagazine.com 
And for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.